Hey guys, and welcome to Twice Exceptional, teens exploring and living with neurodiversity. So I am your host, Kate. Some facts you should know about me is I'm currently 16 years old. I'm the middle child of three, and I am gifted, and I have ADHD, meaning that I am a twice exceptional individual. I started this podcast because living with ADHD can be difficult, and I wanted to find a way to reach people and share some information from the perspective of a neurodivergent teenager who also happens to have a neurodiverse sibling. That's right, me and my younger brother are neurodiverse, which is the second meaning of twice exceptional. So in this podcast, I discuss my experiences living with ADHD, I interview guests, and I research different aspects of neurodiversity. So in this episode, it is an interview episode, I interviewed Brent Seymour, who works for SARC, which is the Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center. They are a great organization, and they help so many people out that have autism spectrum disorder. I love working with them. I've done a lot of volunteer work with them in the past. They're so fun to hang out with. But before we get into the interview, I wanted to share a new segment with you guys. So this segment is what I'm calling the ADHD moment of the week. Even though since I'm now recording bi-weekly, it's technically the ADHD moment of the every two weeks, but that doesn't sound quite as entertaining. So my ADHD moment from the past two weeks would probably be right when I started school. So in Arizona, we start school really early. So I started school on August 3rd, actually. That's why I'm doing every two weeks rather than every week during this time period. But basically what happened is the first day, I left my water bottle in Spanish class. And that's totally fine. It happens. You're forgetful, right? So the next day I had to go back and grab it because she'd already locked up the classroom. And then what I realized was I left my jacket in my math classroom the second day of school. And I was like, I literally cannot keep track of my stuff. And I realized that I'm just so bad at like losing water bottles, losing jackets, all of that. So that was probably my most ADHD moment this week. If you have a moment that you think is an ADHD or neurodiverse moment of the week, please email it to me at twiceexceptionalpodcast at gmail.com, DM me on Instagram, or just send it to me on an Apple podcast comment review, and I will share it with everyone next week. But now let's get into the actual interview. So hi, Brent. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks, Kate, for having me. It's such an honor to be with you. So before we get further into the questions, can you introduce yourself to the listeners, including your name what and what you do at SARC? Yeah, of course. So my name is Brent Seymour. Um, I'm the program supervisor for teen and adult group-based programs at SARC, which is the Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center. Um, and I've been at SARC for almost 12 years. Um, in the early part of that time, I worked in um, our inclusive preschool setting called the community school with younger learners. Um, and a few years back, I transitioned to working with adult learners. Um, and I've been a board certified behavior analyst since 2014. That's super cool. And then what is autism or how would you define it? <laughs> I know it's kind of a lot. So 
Yeah, no, I, I like to lean on um, sources for these types of questions because I think uh, there's a lot of information out there. So it's important to uh, point to a specific source. So I um, pulled up the National Institute of Mental Health because um, I think they have a, a hmm. simple way of describing it. Um, and according to the NIMH, um, autism is a neurological and developmental disorder uh, that impacts an individual's ability to communicate and socialize and affects the way they interact with others and the way that they learn, right? Um, we know that sometimes people are diagnosed with autism later in life, um, however, right? So maybe mm -hmm. a teen um, is diagnosed uh, with autism or even maybe a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old is diagnosed. Um, however, it's referred to as a developmental disorder because oftentimes those um, challenges uh, or symptoms were there early on, but not necessarily detected until mm -hmm. later. Um, do you wanna talk about some of like maybe the hallmark features of a diagnosis? Sure. So like some of the main symptoms and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So some of them um, are deficits in social reciprocity. Um, so in other words, back and forth conversation, uh -huh. sharing of interests or disinterests, um, sharing information, maybe even sharing emotional states with others um, and social initiation. So that kind of counts together. Um, there's some nonverbal social communication challenges, um, perhaps like challenges with eye contact or social, socially orienting towards a person when you're interacting with them, um, or maybe something called affect sharing, right? So being able to share your emotions with others in a way that um, is a connecting point. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think there's some difficulties with developing and maintaining relationships with others, including perspective taking, um, adjusting one's behavior to fit in a particular social context, um, and maybe a lack of interest in others. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's also some generalized, restricted, or repetitive patterns of behavior or interests or activities, such as maybe repetitive speech or motor movements, maybe the restricted following of interests, uh, restricted or highly fixated interests that are maybe abnormal in their intensity or in their focus, um, and a reactivity to sen sensory input or atypical interests in some sensory component of the environment around them. So those are kind of some of the hallmark features of some of the symptoms that are often noted. Mm -hmm. um, and you can find those in the diagnostic criteria, uh, which is kind of a, a, a staple used by diagnosticians or psychologists in order to support people with getting a diagnosis. Yeah. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of those before in your experience, a lot of those symptoms in different people. Absolutely. Absolutely. When, you know, when you're working with young learners, sometimes those symptoms are more core in how they present, right? And I think mm -hmm. just an example of this is um, a child who hasn't yet begun to speak, right? So they're not able to use their words to communicate yet. Um, and as you uh, work with them, perhaps they develop that skill and even uh, flourish in other skills related to talking or expressing mm -hmm. themselves. When you work with adult learners, some of those symptoms are quite nuanced. They're really, uh, they're really tricky to identify and um, can be a, a bit more difficult to work with um, the individual on. Mm -hmm. And then people often say autism is a spectrum because it is like technically autism spectrum disorder. But what exactly would you say that means? 
Yeah, I love this question. Um, it, it's such a good question. I think the first part of why this is such a fantastic question is it allows for us to kind of look at this idea of the autism spectrum um, in its implication, being that it kind of goes from a place of something worse to better, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of that idea of the spectrum being something that's linear, right? It goes from mm -hmm. left to right, so to speak. And I think that's a really challenging way to frame that. Um, the reason is, is because we can experience this when people use that language, kind of like high, high functioning versus low functioning. Oh, yeah. Right. And that's kind of when people hear autism spectrum, they might often think of that, um, that sort of binary or the, the sort of black and white of someone who's low functioning versus someone who's high functioning. Um, and I think it's important that while we do work with individuals that struggle more in some environments or with a particular set of skills, which can make them appear that they're more impacted by their symptoms of autism, we might also see some of those same individuals absolutely flourish in other settings or with other skills. Um, and so, you know, it's important to recognize that a foundational skill like speaking, right? We talked about that a second ago. Uh -huh. um, I think that's generally recognized as something that's critically important, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's highly valued in our culture, many cultures, I would argue. Um, and so that's important. So individuals on the spectrum that do have difficulties with those core skills um, might appear on surface to be more impacted and no doubt they experience adversity in their lives as a result of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to diminish that in any way. Um, but I, I don't think it's appropriate to consider the autism spectrum as something that's linear because I think we uh -huh. need to move away from this place that says, you know, you either have really, really challenging symptoms and it's really hard or you're really able to function pretty easily, right? That's yeah. really not the experience that many individuals on the spectrum have. Uh-huh. That makes sense. Yeah. So, and, oh, go ahead. You're good. You can keep talking. No, I was just going to say, I think the cool part is the second piece of this, which I wanted to actually ask you for your input is, uh -huh. I think there is a, maybe a better way to frame this. Um, and I want to use this imagery or this example that's provided to me by my supervisor, Michelle Reed, um, uh -huh. the way that she put this was really cool. And I'm going to use the imagery of a friendship bracelet. Mm -hmm. So, Kate, when, when I, when I say friendship bracelet, what do you, what does that imagery mean to you? What do you think about? I don't know. A bracelet. So like a circle. Yeah. Have you ever made those with your friends before? Or yeah. Okay. And when you make them, you use different color threads, right? Yeah. And it's kind of interwoven together. Yeah, interwoven together, exactly. So I think that imagery of different color threads being interwoven together may provide a better way to consider what we call this autism spectrum. So if you think about each one of those threads, each one of those colors as a different symptom, right? So maybe the color red is communication challenges, very specific ones, and maybe a different shade of red is a different communication challenge, but maybe shades of blue or shades of purple or shades of orange are different challenges in different areas, right? Social mm -hmm. challenges or repetitive and restrictive behavior. When mm -hmm. you're weaving together those threads, one person might have two red threads and a blue thread, and then two more red threads and an orange thread and a purple thread. Mm -hmm. But another person has a totally different pattern of those colored threads. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about similar symptoms, but they're woven together differently for different people. Um, and, you know, as we know, 
this about all humans. No one person is the same. Uh-huh. And so I think that that imagery really helps when we think about individuals on the spectrum, noting that it's it's basically this complex interweaving um, of the like a wide variety in, uh, in the type and severity of symptoms that they are experiencing. Yeah, that makes sense to me because the same thing's kind of true with ADHD and that the symptoms vary a lot and like people have all sorts of different symptoms and experiences with those symptoms. Like even me and my brother who both have it have totally different experiences with it because every person, I guess, is just different. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever heard of ADHD being referred to as a spectrum? What do you think about that? I have not. I, I think that might make sense personally, okay. since it kind of is, but I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I know sometimes people just talk about, there's like a spectrum of being a human being, right? I yeah. think we're all, we're all getting a lot smarter and a lot more aware of how diverse we all are. Right. As mm-hmm. a group. So anyway. Yeah. And then are there any common trends in age and gender for those diagnosed? I know you already mentioned a little bit on the age, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that the most well-recognized trend um, is this kind of ratio of boys versus girls that are diagnosed. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Okay. So that, I think that's widely talked about, right. And kind of Mm -hmm. referenced. Um, so, you know, t- I think the, the common ratio that's referenced is this four to one, right? So for every four boys diagnosed, one girl is diagnosed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say there's some recent research, like within the past several years, um, that's noting that the ratio may actually be closer to three to one. Um, so three girls, three boys, excuse me, to every one girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this research is kind of citing that girls may be at risk for not being detected as easily. Uh-huh. And definitely in my experience, this is just from my experience. Um, the, the clients that I've worked with that have been female clients, um, it's a, a different presentation of the symptoms, right? And of course, we know that boys and girls are different, right? Males and females are different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can definitely sort of understand why there's research looking into why girls may not be detected as easily as boys are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that seems to be a, con- a common trend that's identified. Yeah, I, I've done some research on that, specifically with ADHD mostly, but I also with like other forms. And a lot of them have more boys being diagnosed than girls. And a part of it might be other factors, but I feel like a lot of it is just girls are not being detected because often their symptoms are just presented differently. Mm -hmm. Like even with me, I was only diagnosed after my younger brother because Mm -hmm. when they went in, they realized I had the symptoms, but otherwise I would not have been diagnosed. So Interesting. Do you think it has something to do with camouflaging where maybe girls can, can camouflage their challenges a little bit easier than boys can? I feel like it could potentially, yeah, have to do with like masking symptoms and stuff, but I'm not totally positive why I've just noticed that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. There's a couple of other trends that I can share too, if you'd like. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, I think that 
work transitioning from working with children to adults one of the more concerning trends that that i've noticed and i think is is researched and and noted mm-hmm. is um this trend of underemployment or unemployment for individuals that are oh yeah right um so according to the aj drexel autism institute at drexel um, university 58 percent of young adults with autism ever worked after high school, right? So after graduating high school, only 58% ever worked after, which that number seems really shocking and scary and concerning for Mm me, right? Because I know plenty of young adults with autism that can absolutely hold employment and can be a total uh, asset and have such success Mm -hmm. at an employment setting, right? And based on another source, um, unemployment for individuals on the autism spectrum is estimated 85%, which again is really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. So all of our early work with individuals is to help teach um, social skills and communication skills. And and really it's to teach independence. Mm -hmm. And if we're working so hard to support the families and the families themselves are working so hard to um, to improve their lives, their child's life, and the child themselves is working to improve, but then we get to an outcome that's 85% are unemployed, those things don't seem to be matching, mm-hmm. right? And that feels really scary. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's because of the social skills, or do you think that there's just some issues with like discrimination and stuff? Yeah. Or I mix. Th- yeah, I think the answer is yes, right? I think definitely, I, I definitely think that more now there is programming um, and, and treatment to support young adults, adolescents in pre-employment skills, in employment skills, so that they can be more successful on the job. And definitely, you know, we, we, it's not a matter of teaching an individual to complete a task. Right, many individuals, regardless of them being neurotypical or neuro- neurodiverse, can be easily taught to complete a task. Yeah. Really, I think what you've pointed out is it's it's kind of all the other skills, the soft skills, right, the social skills that are really hard. And mm-hmm. if you screw one of those up, even just a tiny bit, it may actually submarine your your opportunity. It might completely mess you up in that culture, mm-hmm. and then you're no longer accepted. Mm-hmm. And then I think that gets to that second piece that you pointed out, which is that sort of discrimination piece, or perhaps it's maybe just the ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. Not said in a, in a negative way, but just a sort of a definition of ignorance way, right? Like just not knowing yeah. that individuals on the spectrum are totally capable of, um, of being productive and successful in the workplace. So mm-hmm. society, I think, has some room to continue to grow in, in order to support that. Yeah. So then kind of leading into my next question, there are a lot of stereotypes out there about people with autism. So how often, in your opinion, from the ones you've heard, are they actually true or are most of them just false? This, I really like this question because uh, of course, all the time that I think about this, I have a bunch of different stereotypes that people have said before, I've heard before running through my head. And most of the time, as soon as one of those enters, my thoughts, I'm immediately like, no, that's false. (laughs) Um, I don't find any of the stereotypes to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some stereotypes that you've heard that, or that if I can put you on the spot that you might've heard and just amongst Um, your perhaps? 
Um, I, I can't think of that many stereotypes. Often I feel like it's either they're like unintelligent or they're super intelligent. One or the other, not really anywhere in between. Totally. Yeah, that's one I had. One of those I had noted here is that sort of this notion that individuals with autism, you know, can't learn. Right. Or are, aren't intelligent. And of course, that's not true. Um, a diagnosis of autism is not a diagnosis of a cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. um, necessarily, right? So it doesn't mean that individuals with autism have cognitive impairment. That's not what that means. Um, my favorite is like the lack of affection stereotype. Uh, yeah. that individuals on the spectrum aren't affectionate. Um, I mean, you know, like all stereotypes are rooted in ignorance and misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. Many of the stereotypes about autistic individuals are also rooted in the same. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely it's safe to say that I think many of the stereotypes ab about this group, they're like, they're not affectionate or they're not smart. They're definitely false. Mm -hmm. um, are there some individuals on the spectrum that don't like hugs? Sure. Right. Are there some neurotypical individuals that also don't like to hug? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. yeah. And then we kind of talked about social challenges a little bit, but what are some of the biggest social challenges for people with autism? I think relationship building and perspective taking are two very challenging social areas for, for all of us. I mean, I'll say all of us, right, generally <laughs> speaking, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, again, as we talked about already, due to some of the characteristics of a diagnosis of autism, then... There, there are likely, these things are likely more difficult um, for people on the spectrum, right? These two areas, relationship building and perspective taking. Mm -hmm. um, I can definitely say in my experience as a pr practitioner, um, we work really hard to come up with creative ways to teach children how to form relationships with others. Um, and we, you know, we definitely take a look at their behavior of social in initiations or reciprocal commenting, um, or asking questions of others and sharing interests and all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the biggest difficulty I think is that it, even with the most naturalistic teaching methods, right? We do it in a school setting where neurotypical individuals are present. It's, there's still a level of treatment being applied, right? There's still, there's still this notion of we are teaching a foundational skill that some other individuals don't have to direct, directly be taught. Mm -hmm. right? Some of that is innate or, in, or organic, right? And I think due to that organic nature to the development of these skills or the long-term maintenance of these skills like relationship building um, skills, it, it makes it so nuanced and difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sure as all of your listeners can appreciate making friends is not as easy as walking up to someone that's in your class or like looks cool or mm -hmm. looks nice and saying like, hi, my name's Brent. Do you want to be my friend? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's 100% not that black and white. That's not mm -hmm. the way it works. Um, and it's actually kind of a terrible way to start a relationship with someone. You're not engaging in any of like the relationship building skills, like trading information or identifying if they have interests the same as yours, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some overall guidelines we can teach how to develop a friendship or a romantic relationship, but mm -hmm. there's also so many things that can't be predicted, right? Yeah. So definitely, I think that area, um, and again, perspective taking, so difficult 
um, yeah. again, for all of us, and even more challenging for individuals that have particular difficulties in social and communication areas. Yeah. And then we already talked a little bit about the Southwest Autism Research and Resource Center, but can you explain more about what you actually do there? Yeah, absolutely. So SARC, we're, we're an organization that provides behavioral treatment for individuals on the autism spectrum across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. um, and we do that in order to ensure that those individuals have the opportunity to be meaningfully included in as many aspects of their lives as they want for themselves, mm -hmm. right? So think about this for individuals, for very young learners that are attending preschool, right? Being mm -hmm. able to be meaningfully included in the classroom without being looked at as different or unaccepted, right? Um, so we provide individualized treatment um, and we do it in various settings, including one-to-one -one supports, maybe in the clinic or in, in the family's home or in a community setting. But we also provide group-based treatment, which is again, what I do. Um, mm -hmm. And we provide that in social group settings or community settings or also at the clinic. Um, mm -hmm. So again, the ultimate goal is to support true inclusion and independence, right? Uh -huh. um, our practice, so the second part of this is we're rooted in applied behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, ABA is the science of behavior used to promote behavior change in socially significant ways. Mm -hmm. um, this is accomplished by identifying the unique areas in which a person might want to increase pro-social or communication behavior. Um, so behavior increase, right? Behavior acquisition, um, or by identifying behaviors that might be challenging for that person in a particular setting um, and or be a barrier to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so we might look at that as behavior reduction, identifying things that we want to support them to reduce in order to be successful. Um, it's important to point out that the focus is on what is important to that person in order to support an improved quality of life. Okay. And we refer to this as the social significance of behavior change. And so in your experience, what part of autism needs to be addressed more? Um, yeah, I mean, we've kind of already talked about this a little bit, but I, I definitely think one of the, one of the major things that I experienced, and again, that transition from working with the youngest learners to adult learners, mm -hmm. um, is it becomes immediately apparent that supports for teens and adults, um, in, in treatment is there's still so much left to discover and innovate. So we definitely need to continue to tackle and chip away at, you know, the opportunities for teens and adults um, to have complex spaces to work through complex behavior, right? Um, so specifically working with adults to live independently, truly independently is mm -hmm. a huge task and something that I think is even scary for young adults and their families, but something that's really necessary. Um, and so we have, a uh, program at SART called Transition Academy, a lot of really awesome work being done to support young adults in learning how to live independently um, at First Place, which is a really cool um, innovative housing um, opportunity for young adults to have a supportive and, and safe place to live, but also, you know, learn to execute adult skills, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's really amazing and really important. I think, of course, access and the, the ability to access and attain competitive employment 
um, and then integrate within local communities. Um, these are focuses that should be, um, and I think are at the forefront um, of, of this space, working with adults, mm -hmm. teens and adults specifically. Um, another one, and I think this is kind of back to one of the common trends, you know, we kind of talked earlier about, but one of the common trends that we didn't talk about is, it is again, according to Drexel University, autistic children and adults experience higher rates of co-occurring mental health conditions than their typical, oh, yeah. years, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this has a huge impact on how they're going to navigate healthcare throughout the rest of their lives, as well as um, impacts their overall quality of life. So I think this intersection between autism and mental health, um, certainly an area where there's a lot of really awesome work being done mm -hmm. um, and definitely one that we as behaviorists need to continue to support. I, you know, I'm particularly trained and uh, in, in observing and measuring the behaviors that I see on the outside, right? So the way that you talk or the way that you attend to me um, or the way that you answer my questions, but I'm not very good at being a mind reader. Um, yeah. and that no one really is. Um, but I think that we find out so much more when we start to discover what people are thinking because their thoughts have a exert a, a, a large amount of control over the behaviors that they engage in. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is for all of us. So for individuals on the spectrum, I think it's important to continue to investigate how mental health, uh, concerns, impact their diagnosis of autism and, and the other way around. Yeah. And again, some really awesome work being done to support how we can kind of dive into some of the things that are going on internally for people in their head, um, in their minds, in their thoughts, in order to support their behavioral improvement. So those are a couple mm -hmm. of areas that I think need a lot more work and hopefully good work's being done. I think it is. We're reaching the end, but what should listeners do to provide support for people with autism if they happen to know people that have it as like family, friends, whatever? Yeah, I think there's a few different pieces to this one. Um, I, I think first, you know, people should definitely seek education on what autism is, right? So that's what we're doing here. And I, I applaud you and just so much appreciate you because I think not only you, you seem um, incredibly well-versed and very connected in to what it means to be neurodiverse um, mm -hmm. or neurodivergent. I think that's amazing, especially mm -hmm. as a young person. So you're definitely supporting the people that listen to your podcast to have access to that information too, which is incredible. Um, but I think it's also important that people seek information, right? Go to not the internet and just search, right? But look for reputable, right? Well-researched, um, institutions or information that's coming from places that are, um, that are well-known, right? I, I think more education awareness for society mm -hmm. definitely would help that are in ways that are more accepting, empathic, appreciative, tolerant, supportive of neurodivergent individuals just mm -hmm. all together, right? Um, particularly those, um, on the autism spectrum. And then, and then I think this will have a huge impact on inclusion overall. So, as, as we work to educate ourselves, um, you know, the people that are educating themselves are business owners, right? They're community members, they're mm -hmm. librarians working in the little social circle time groups at the library. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to start to hire people that have autism because they're more educated, right? 
Um, they're going to figure out ways to support those individuals during the little circle time library fun and game time, right? Because they know they know what autism is and they maybe have a better understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to help society in a greater way. Um, and then I think get involved, you know, like attend the annual walk, right? Lots of states across the country have annual walks. We have Yes Day um, for SARC. And so get mm-hmm. involved, attend the walk. Um, it's a good way to get out and see all of the community members that come out and support because they're impacted in some way or another um, by autism, right? They have a relative with autism. They have a son or a daughter. They have a friend, um, their spouse, whomever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so get involved, participate in programs like you, right? Mm-hmm. Get involved with community works, um, participate as a, a neurotypical team, so to speak, right? To support yeah. individuals, Um so they can have an opportunity to interact with peers and learn some of the social skills and also make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have that very typical experience as a human of doing it right and totally whiffing and doing it terribly because um, that's what all of us do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so find ways to support these organizations. Um, and then I think if you have like a personal connection with someone on the spectrum, talk to them, right? Like, Encourage them to self-advocate, encourage Mm -hmm. them to be self-determined, ask them what their preferences are, ask them what they hate, right? Talk to them like you talk to anyone else because they're going to be able to give you a window in to what they're experiencing. And I think Mm -hmm. through those one-to-one communication exchanges, we can learn a lot and we can improve a lot and we can support more than we think, right? So that's kind of my soapbox little spiel, but I, I feel really strongly that if we can just be ourselves, bring ourselves to the table, um, then we'll find out a lot more and and we'll do better for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, If people have questions, where can they reach you? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Um, Definitely. You can reach me uh, by email. Mm -hmm. Um, So first letter is B for Brent. And then my last name is Seymour, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R at autismcenter.org. So Seymour at autismcenter.org. Mm-hmm. Definitely reach out and connect. I, I'm happy to connect. Um, definitely, if you're between the ages of 13 and 18 and you want to participate in Community Works, we mm-hmm. have a fall session to come yeah. out and participate. So definitely, if you're uh-huh. listening and you're in that age range, um, reach out, hit me up. I'll give you more info. It's a really awesome experience. And Kate, I know you can speak to that. So, uh-huh. um, so yeah, um, those are some ways to connect. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Kate. I would like to thank Brent one more time for his wonderful advice and great interview with me. And I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I did, if not more. But if you did enjoy it, please consider following the podcast on our TikTok and Instagram at twice underscore exceptional podcast. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at twice exceptional podcast at gmail.com. As always, I would love to hear from you.